I thought what I wanted to do was a little crazy. I had been reading the Bible in Hebrew since I was a teenager, and I was just knocked out by, by its stylistic virtues. And I thought, I gotta try to do that in English. You just heard the voice of Robert Alter, our guest on this week's episode of Chapter and Verse, the podcast that takes you into the inner workings of the books, films, and music that shape our cultural imagination. I'm your host, Scott Saul, and in today's show, we're delving into the most read book of all time, the Bible, with a focus on some of its most intriguing and unusual stories. Robert Alter is a powerhouse of a scholar. He's also the most esteemed translator of the Hebrew Bible, and he'll be our guide today as we explore the Book of Esther, the Song of Songs, and the Book of Jonah. So many of us, when we learn the stories of the Bible, get them through Sunday school lessons or holiday sermons, where they're condensed, simplified, and wrapped up with disnified storybook endings. That's why reading the Bible through Robert Alter's translations can feel like reading the Bible for the first time. The poetry of the book's prose and the strangeness of its storytelling come alive. In his hands, the Bible is revealed as the most remarkable of literary anthologies, a collection that shifts in tone and worldview from story to story. The God who emerges across its pages is a very complex character who is inconsistent in the way that people are. Today, we'll dive into three of the Bible's most peculiar books. We'll explore the Book of Esther, the closest the Bible comes to a sex comedy. We'll discuss the Song of Songs, the Bible's foremost example of love poetry. And finally, we'll examine the Book of Jonah, the Bible at its most fantastic and ethically challenging. Robert Alter is a professor of Hebrew and comparative literature here at Berkeley and the author of 25 influential books of literary criticism and translation. He recently published Strong as Death is Love, which is the latest installment in a 20-year project of translating and annotating the Hebrew Bible, an undertaking that, I think it's fair to say, is one of the most magnificent scholarly projects of our time. Robert Alter, welcome to Chapter and Verse. Thank you. And Scott, I think I have to hire you as a publicist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all true, as you know. Um, Now, before we delve into the, the book of Esther, I wanted to ask you to kind of go back... 20-odd years or however it was when you first started this project, mm-hmm. Translating Bible, Ask, how is it that you decided to take on that task? As I understand, you'd already published uh, with the art of biblical narrative and the art of biblical poetry, these critical works that reframed our understanding of the Bible as literature. So what made you want to take that step and do the thing itself? Well, it, what made me want to do that was an accident. Um, uh, a... Um, very engaging and intelligent editor at the um, publisher W.W. W. Norton uh, came to see me and he said, uh, we would love you to do a Norton critical edition. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not all of your listeners may be familiar with it. We who teach know about those. They're, they're wonderful teaching editions with, with smart introductions, a a certain limited amount of annotation, and then all kinds of essays and contemporary documents in the back of the book. So he said, we'd like you to do either something from Kafka, because I had just written on Kafka at the time, or something from the Bible. So when he said the Bible, I said, gee, somebody could put together a really good Norton critical edition of the book of Genesis, because now there there's some excellent things that have been published on Genesis that you could put in the back of the book. But the problem is, and this is where you have to be careful what you say, and I'm not always careful, the problem is that there's something wrong with all the translations uh, existing. And if I were to do this, I'd have to do my own translation from scratch. And if I could just butt in, what were some of the problems, in brief, that you saw in the way, I mean, obviously we have the King James Version, uh, but that's not yeah. a modern translation. So we have ways of hearing Genesis in our mind, but what was the problem with the more contemporary translations? Yeah, the King James, of course, is splendid. Uh, it's obviously now rather archaic. Oh, that doesn't bother me. 
uh, is also quite inaccurate. And, and there are certain things stylistically for all its splendors that are wrong with it, but I won't go into that. The, in the second half of the 20th century, a, a series of different scholarly ecclesiastical committees, uh, Protestant, Jewish, and uh, even Catholic, uh, produced new translations of the Bible. And they're all disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, think I used the New Jerusalem Bible. Maybe yeah. that was one of those. Uh, th yeah, that, that's okay, but it's still not, not great. The, the problem, it's a double-edged problem. First, these scholars, you know, people, let's say, in America who got their PhDs at Johns Hopkins or Harvard or Yale, uh, learned a lot of useful things, ancient languages uh, and uh, uh, deciphering manuscripts and so forth, but they, they never learned anything about style in the Hebrew Bible. So they don't see it. Hmm. The, the second problem is that, uh, whereas in the early 17th century, you could put together a committee of learned divines, as King James did, who, were, who could be in touch with the literary culture of their age. Like Lancelot Andrews, who was one of the, I think the most influential person in the King James team, uh, was one of the great prose stylists of his generation. You know, we have his sermons. Uh, now there's a kind of division of labor, and I, I don't think people who do PhDs in Bible um, read poetry, or not much, or very few of them, or, or, or read uh, great stylists who are writing fiction. And so th th there, there are many manifestations of tin ear, you know, mixing of dictions and just plain clumsiness and making the Bible sound like it's the daily newspaper and so forth. So that's, those were my dis dissatisfactions. Mm -hmm. Now, just to finish this little story, um, my agent and uh, the person from Norton entered into conversations. At the end of those conversations, I... Uh, started on a translation of the Bible rather th than uh, that there was not going to be a, a Norton critical edition. Also, I have to say this. I thought what I wanted to do was a little crazy. <laughs> that, I had been reading the Bible in Hebrew since I was a teenager, and I was just knocked out by, by its stylistic virtues. And I thought, I got to try to do that in English. But the structure of modern English and the structure of biblical Hebrew are very different. And I thought, well, it's not doable, and what I'm going to come up with, everybody's going to hate, and I'm going to hate. And it's not perfect. You know, there are places where I can point to, I said, I couldn't solve that problem. Mm -hmm. But it was a rather better approximation of, of what I, I had in mind than I thought it would be, and people liked it. <laughs> I'm curious, so you came to the project of translating the Bible, already having been a scholar, you've obviously written a lot about biblical literature, but also having written about 18th, 19th, 18th century, 19th century novels, right. 20th century writers like Kafka. And so do you feel like that filtered into your sense of what was possible to do in, in the language? Yeah, I think so. Um, well, let's say um, sensitive readers, when... They, they read Melville, are uh, just uh, uh, overwhelmed by, by the, the power and the beauty of his language, the, those magnificent cadences that sound like Shakespeare uh, and also sound like the King James Version and those brilliant metaphors and so forth. Um, and I thought, well, I have a similar reaction to the mm. Bible, so is there some way to convey that in English? Mm -hmm. To make it enchanting, yeah, uh, as well as being a kind of a, something that gives us instruction, right, as it were. Right. Um, well, let's dive into the book of Esther, um, which is enchanting in ways that maybe yes. very few other books of the Bible are. Um, some of our listeners will know that it's you know, one of the books, one of two books of the Bible where the name of God is, is not, not mentioned. Is right? not mentioned. 
Now, I wanted to jump out of the interview for a second to give listeners a little refresher on the Book of Esther, because most of us haven't read it in a long time, or maybe only know it from the Jewish holiday of Purim, which involves kids dressing up in costumes, playing carnival games, and eating lots of poppy seed pastries called hamantaschen. But the Book of Esther is actually a lot more adult in its humor and more wild in its story than the children's holiday suggests. One reason that the book doesn't mention God is because it evokes a world of very human passions and appetites, a world where no one seems especially devout. It's the story of a Persian ruler, King Ahasuerus, who lives very large, hosting lavish feasts that last weeks on end, but has a problem finding and keeping a queen. So he hosts an open competition to see who can join him on the royal throne and in the royal bed. Esther, a Jewish woman who hides her Jewish faith, wins the competition. But meanwhile, King Ahasuerus has an advisor, Haman, who stirs up trouble in his kingdom. When Esther's uncle Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, flouting his authority, Haman suggests that all Jews in Ahasuerus' kingdom should be killed. And Ahasuerus, who has little mind of his own, agrees. The stage is then set for the big reveal. Esther tells Ahasuerus that she, his wife, is a Jew, and therefore has been sentenced to death by Haman. Ahasuerus, in response, decides that it's Haman who shall be killed. And in the triumphant finale of the story, Ahasuerus has Haman and his ten sons impaled on stakes that are 50 cubits high and proclaims that the Jews will be protected and that they should celebrate this moment forevermore, thus the festival of Purim. Okay, now back to the interview. In your um, introduction to the Book of Esther, you say that its narrative world is fundamentally secular. Can you maybe explain a bit uh, what you're thinking about when you, when you yeah, say that? Yeah, now, Jews versus uh, Persians uh, are uh, much at stake in, in the story. Uh, but the Jews don't particularly figure as a religious group. I'm, I'm not saying that they're not religious, but, but what is brought to the fore in, in the story is that they have their own ethnic practices, their own regulations. Uh, even um, uh, one of the emperor's courtiers says there is one people whose rules are different. And he, there's a, a Persian loan word, dat, which in modern Hebrew has come to mean religion, actually, but it doesn't in Esther. Uh, and, and that word keeps coming back. So, so these people have a, a, a bunch uh, of, of dots that, that are different from the surrounding peoples. Uh, it, it's, uh, you never see anybody praying. Uh, 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 and uh, as far as I can see, it really is secular. Right. They, it's not, I mean, so, uh, you know, Esther, this beautiful Jewish commoner who kind of maneuvers her way into becoming Queen Esther. Right. Uh, Actually, as far as I can make out, uh, she uh, sleeps her way in becoming the, the, the king's uh, consort, you know, like the, the Hollywood casting bed. <laughs> right. That's, that's why I found so amazing. You know, I said that I had a kind of Sunday schoolish right. idea of Esther from various Purim celebrations. And nowhere do they talk about the charms that Esther must use uh, to go from being this uh, common woman mm -hmm. to being raised to the throne. Um, and you, I mean, that gets at this way that, the, the, you know, I said before, this book has aspects of being a sort of a sex comedy. Yeah, all I these think men, it does. You, you talk uh, about the, the king's scepter, right? Isn't it? Right, That's right. referred to in certain ways. It, uh, you know, I think that she touches the head of the scepter or the head right, of the scepter right, touches right. her. <laughs> yeah. um, do Have other scholars heard these resonances or is this something that, that you're bringing out, you know, with your kind of knowledge of... No, I think that's my angle on it. <laughs> yeah. In Sunday school, uh, I know many of us have been to Sunday schools. Mm. Uh, they sort of promote this idea that, that what the King Ahasuerus... Uh, promotes uh, uh, runs is a um, a beauty contest 
But the, the narrative says very explicitly about each of the beautiful young virgins that um, in, in the evening she came and in the morning she went. So each of them spends the night with him. And then we have to use our own yeah. imagination <laughs> to think, well, what's going on there? Right. That would be the test. Right. <laughs> and how does a, a virginal woman succeed? Right. You know, with this apparently king who is bedding all these men, all these women. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently this virgin had uh, was a natural. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's uh, again, it's it's great to actually read the Bible sensitively. Yeah. And with imagination, mm-hmm. as I really feel like your your translation uh, gets me to do. Um, you also uh, talk about how the book is a work of fantasy, that it doesn't. It has a kind of um, a relationship to the history of Jews in Persia that would make us not re- read it as a kind of history. Right. Do you, do you want to explain that a bit? Sure. Because I think it might help your uh, listeners to, understand to, how it works. To begin with, the the notion that any Persian emperor would authorize somebody to massacre uh, its the emperor empire's entire uh, Jewish population is quite fantastic mm-hmm. because the uh, the Persians were actually known for their tolerance. Um, uh, that, that is, the, there's a famous Cyrus scroll which uh, I saw in the British Museum. It's a it's a cylinder. I'm sorry, inscribed on all sides. And when Cyrus ascended to the throne, he put out this decree, which was inscribed on, on the, the cylinder, that, that um, uh, all the peoples and faiths under his rule would have freedom of uh, religion and could build the, their sanctuaries and so forth. And of course, the Persians authorized the, uh, the Jews to return to the kingdom of Judah and to rebuild the, their temple. So th- this idea that that, um, uh, that that a massacre would be authorized by, by the the king doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. how do, um, how does that sense that it is a work of fantasy change how we, we imagine that uh, people in the ancient world read it and understood it? You know, with the character like, how are we supposed to take um, that arch villain uh, Haman um, is he thought to be a kind of a cartoon villain, even you know in uh, the original? I think so. Um, that is to to begin with, uh, he's given this ethnic connection with the Amalekites, who were the sworn enemies of ancient Israel several centuries earlier. Uh, there is no way that, that that a high official in the Persian court could could have been connected with, with the Amalekites, and I I think your characterization of a cartoon villain works very well. You know, he he sputters with anger when uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down to him, and so on and so forth. It seemed like every you know it's you're translation of the commentary really got this like so much in the story is exaggerated yes you know yes. that this persia the version we given is much larger than any persia that ever existed right right you know the i don't know the harem of ahasuerus has all these different women so many aspects of the, of the the way the story is told are meant to give us a sense of the fantastic or the the kind of almost the tall tale right and of course the the length of the drinking parties that go <laughs> on for 180 days i mean half half the participants would be dead of alcohol poisoning <laughs> by then yeah so i mean it gives you i, I guess there's a sense then that this is a story that, that's told for entertainment purposes yeah. you know and um it, it's about a kind of fantasy of empowerment Mm-hmm. And, exactly. and, and, and That's the great good. reversal. Uh, it seems that what happens to Haman is actually, and and his sons, quite extreme in the sense of, well, he is killed and then he's impaled. And all his sons. And he, all ten of his sons yeah. are impaled. Uh, and, and then the revenge continues, where right. Ahasuerus says, well, I guess, Esther, if you want this, you know, you can, uh, what, um kill all of the Jews' enemies, including um, women and children, and take plunder. Right. 
And, and so what happens then? What, it, you know, the revenge does play out, right? It, it, I found it a little discomforting, in fact. It is discomforting, but it, it it's uh, part of the fantasy world of the story, ju- just as a... The, the breadth of the empire and the fact that there are 120 different peoples and they all speak different languages. Uh, all, all this is, is part of the fantasy. And, um, I, okay, I, I'm going to, to, to float a conjecture here, which I, I didn't put in, in my introduction or, or, or notes. The end of the Book of Esther, of course, mm. Uh, lays out the regulations for a new holiday, a holiday which is never mentioned in, in the earlier books of the Bible, uh, the, the, the holiday of Purim. Now, Purim occurs in March, so it occurs around the same time as the Mardi Gras, the, the um, Roman Saturnalia, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why that is. I will leave that to, to anthropologists. But I think that the the Jews in the Persian Empire picked up this holiday, mm-hmm. and then somebody invented a story to provide a, a um, justification for the holiday. But considering that the holiday itself is carnivalesque, mm-hmm. people... Uh, uh, get dead drunk, uh, they certainly later on, and maybe even originally, they, they wear costumes and masks. Uh, so uh, a story that would be both highly entertaining and highly fantastic in, in all its aspects, including the revenge fantasy of a powerless people, uh, w- all this would seem appropriate. Yeah, and to go from being the person who, like a Mordecai, begins, he's in the what, a sackcloth and ashes, right, right. and then he's wearing like the robes of the yes, counselor yes. to the king, right, you know, right. that sense to go from the lowest to the highest places. I mean, one thing I, I did find really fascinating, uh, and here I was getting into the chapter and verse, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. of Esther, is um, how... What, Ahasuerus basically says, you know, you can, you know, kill all these people that have been your enemies and take all their goods, take your plunder or booty. Yeah. But then it's, it seems like they, it's very strong emphasis that the Jews, they, there's killing that's done, um, hundreds of their enemies, but they do not take the spoils. Right, right. Why do you think that is? Why, why is that in there? Well, uh, I suppose what the, the writer had in mind was that, okay, they're going to wipe out all these people that, that, that were going to murder them, but they, they, they don't want to have a, a profit motive involved in it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a morally untainted yes, kind of revenge. Right, right. More like tit for tat. <laughs> yes, yes. As opposed to we're going to be opportunistic about it because right. the king has allowed us to be. Right. You know? So in that sense, the Jews... St- remain a kind of more moral yeah. than a Hasuerus, you know. Yeah. Why don't we um, move on to the Song of Songs? Okay. Uh, in some ways, that's the other book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God, right. right? But in some ways, it's hard to think of a book that's more different from Esther. I'm going to pop us out of the interview again to explain Song of Songs, which isn't a story with a straightforward narrative like the Book of Esther. It's a series of poems that celebrate the free enjoyment of the pleasures of love. With the main speaker being a woman addressing her lover. And because, as biblical scholars have deduced, it was stitched together from a number of different sources, the book as a whole is not exactly coherent. It jumps around a bit in terms of point of view and story. Okay, back to the interview. I had two sort of different reactions mm-hmm. you know, to this love poetry. On the one hand, I was astonished by how contemporary it felt in its celebration of the body and its sensuality and even in a sense that you know the best intimacy is mutual and you might even say egalitarian um that there's this right the woman shows a lot of initiative she she shows a a lot of initiative and she's always there's a it's a dialogue so often i didn't didn't quite get that in other translations i'd read um on the other hand um i was constantly made aware of how as poetry the Song of Songs comes from a very different world than, say, our contemporary uh, poetry. Uh, and it wasn't just the matter of kind of unusual metaphors or similes. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there was one that I wrote down where um, 
the woman's nose. It says, your, it says, your nose like the, is like the Tower of Lebanon looking yeah. out toward Damascus. I know right. if I said that to my wife, <laughs> your nose is like this tower. So you'll probably not like it too much. Um, so there's that. But yeah. more that it doesn't conform to the expectations I have about what contemporary love poetry might be like, that it's the voices shift, the pronouns shift, the metaphors kind of often don't add up or kind of spill out mm-hmm. as opposed to being in some kind of integrated structure. Yeah. And um, maybe what you could do is um, read from the first chapter of Song okay. of Songs, and then we could talk about uh, its unusually captivating poetry. All right, I'll read from the, the first chapter, and uh, I'll make just one comment. That, uh, the chapter divisions for all the books of the Bible were much later. They were, they were done in the Middle Ages. And... Um, they don't necessarily correspond to literary units. So the, the the first chapter consists of maybe four different poems. Maybe I'll just pause between each one. They're, they're, they're very short. And there's also maybe a sense that there's some fragments that were assembled oh, yeah, you know, into a certain structure. So yeah. you have to kind of go with the flow if you're a reader yeah. of these things. Uh, especially at... The last chapter, I think, has a lot of fragments. I have the suspicion that the editor had the, these parchment scraps uh, on his editorial desk, and he didn't want to give them up, so he just pasted them in. At the very end, yeah. Yeah, okay. I am dark, but desirable, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like Solomon's curtains. Do not look on me for being dark, for the sun has glared on me. My mother's sons were incensed with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me whom I love so, where you pasture your flock at noon, lest I go straying after the flocks of your companions. If you do not know, O fairest of women, go out in the tracks of the sheep and graze your goats by the shepherd's shelters. To my mare among Pharaoh's chariots I liken you, my friend. Your cheeks are lovely with looped earrings, your neck with beads. Earrings of gold we will make for you with silver filigree. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave off its scent. A sachet of myrrh is my lover to me all night between my breasts. A cluster of henna my lover to me in the vineyards of Engedi. Oh, you are fair, my friend. Oh, you are fair, your eyes are doves. Oh, you are fair, my love. You are sweet, our bed is verdant too. Our houses, beams, our cedar, our rafters evergreen. That's beautiful. Um, now, I mean, one thing that really struck me, and this is going to probably seem obvious to an old biblical scholar like yourself, yeah. uh, is that this is narrated by a woman for so much of it. Yes. And I was wondering if you could just put that in the in a context of ancient writing, and you know, how much, uh, what did it mean to give a woman? Um, uh, the voice of a love poem uh, in this kind of ancient Jewish world? Well, clearly, uh, there's no getting away from this. The, the biblical world is a male-dominated uh, world. Um, I, I, I don't really have to illustrate that. Um, I, I think that that the, um, the genre of love poetry, now, now this is the only instance we have in the Bible of love poetry, but there, there are a couple of hints elsewhere that there were love poems circulating, maybe circulating even a few centuries before uh, the Song of Songs, which is a late biblical book. And, and I, I think that the, the, the genre, you know, we, we as literary scholars know that, that every genre ha- has its ground rules. Uh, that this particular genre um, uh, encouraged a certain egalitarianism, 
that that is the, these two lovers are, are um, not constricted but by uh, the 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 structures of the hierarchical society which is there so does that make some sense that a woman is given full voice here but it's i mean that's fascinating because i think off you know kind of a contemporary understanding might say that well if there's sexism in the boardroom there's going to be sexism in the bedroom right right but it's almost <laughs> like you get a sense that these two lovers as figured in song of songs it's like there may be certain structures of power outside of their intimacy but within their intimacy it's you know egalitarian loving um, um desirous mm. mutually desirous and so on no i think that's absolutely right and you see there are a couple of instances where she takes him by the hand and leads him back to the bedchamber. Yeah, so she kind of takes he takes right, the initiative, right. and um, and she's clearly somebody who appreciates how her lover looks and and smells the. Uh, she's you know has the myrrh, but he has his oils. That's right. So they're all perfumed and um, looking so much to please uh, mm -hmm. one one another. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about the um, the passage in that first chapter where she's talking about being dark uh, but desirable, you know, and those references to the um, tents of Kedar, and and she says, "Do not look on me for being dark." Right. What, what do you think? Where do you think that's coming from? Like, uh, you know, what what is she, is she referring to? Um, what kind of animus to her? Or judgment of her? Is she? pushing away well she's certainly not talking about race e even though you, you probably know that that in the black is beautiful moment of the black liberation uh, movement th these verses were, were cited mm. but she's um, addressing the daughters of jerusalem who presumably are aristocratic young women mm. and um having a fair skin is a sign of social status because a cultivated aristocratic young woman is mostly with, within the shelter of her home, whereas a peasant woman uh, is out in the sun and gets suntan. And you, you see this going on in, in literature, like in Fielding's Joseph Andrews, in, written in the 18th century, um, the, the, Joseph Andrews, who seems to be of peasant stock, but he's really, really, his father is a gentleman. Somehow, or other, he's amazingly white-skinned, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in contradiction to to his uh, uh, ostensible uh, peasant affiliation. So, the brothers have quarrelled with her. I think they've quarreled with her because she's been practicing sexual freedom. And the, they... Um, that part of that, my mother's sons were incensed with me. Right, right. So the, they, they, as punishment, they send her out to, to be a, a, a guardian of the vineyards where she's exposed to the sun. Um, and um, she... Uh, and, and, uh, the poem is full of wonderful double meanings. When, when she says, "My um, uh, um, uh, my own garden, I have not uh, kept," uh, she is referring to two things. She's referring to the fact that, well, because she's stuck out in the field, uh, she can't doing this have, work for her brothers. Yeah, she can't have this beautiful complexion of the aristocratic young women. It's also, I think, a sexual reference that that, that she hasn't taken care of her garden. Quote that, that she's uh, uh, she's permitted herself to have lovers, mm -hmm. um, and she will, and later on she'll use that language of the garden. You know, that's the that's kind of right, lovers retreat right. yeah. that will come back right, again and again. Right. Um, but uh, it's, it's really re remarkable to me that kind of you get a kind of double egalitarianism. That it's it's the one. It's the uh, egalitarianism of the two lovers, the man and the woman, but also the egalitarians of the woman saying, I, I don't care for these signs of status, um, the fair-skinned or the daughters of Jerusalem, you know. We create our own authority, our own pleasures uh, in this world. Right. And, and of course, the, the, the 
the brothers as bad guys strikes me uh, as something that hasn't gone away in, in the contemporary Middle East. You, you mm. know, these honor killings mm. that the brothers carry out when their uh, uh, sisters had an affair and so forth. Well, that gets to this question of how did this, I mean, we'll talk about more of the poetry, but how did this book get in the Bible, given that it seems to push against certain hierarchical structures, you know, and, and, right. and, and celebrate sensuality yeah. when so much, you know, of, uh, of, you know, orthodox practice would you know, separate out sure. man and woman and not want to think about lovers and uh, women not taking care of their vineyards and, and so on. Right. Well, uh, I would suggest that there are two reasons, and I don't claim that they're exactly coextensive, although they may have been simultaneous in some ancient readers. One is the, um, uh, the famous fact that, that very early on, the Song of Songs w was read allegorically, uh, both by Jews and Christians. So that, that is, for Christians, the, uh, uh, the young man was Christ and the young woman was the church. For Jews, the young man w was uh, God uh, and uh, the, the young woman was the community of Israel. Uh, and it, it, there's a famous moment in the Talmud, whether it's historical or not, I don't know, where, where they're debating whether the Song of Songs should be included. And w one of the great early Jewish sages, Rabbi Akiva, says, eh, if all the writings are holy, the Song of Songs is holy of holies. I, I think that has to be based on the assumption that you read it allegorically. And then there's also uh, maybe a certain pressure from below that, that, that is there are indications that these were very popular poems. And, and we can't deprive the people. And, of, and they continue to be used to celebrate weddings right, and, and so right, on. Although right. I, I looked at them before my wedding. That's before your translation came yeah. out. And uh, I, I think I blushed. They were too erotic for, you know, like, <laughs> this, happens, this is more yeah. for the bedroom right, right. Uh, than for nuptials. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and that makes me think about, you know, lines like, um, you know, a, a sachet of myrrh is my lover to me all night. Uh, between my, my breasts. breasts. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, how do you, how do you interpret that line? What do you take it to mean mean on different oh, levels? Well, it's of course what it, what the metaphor refers to is the fact that they're spending the night together, and presumably he's uh, resting between her breasts. Mm -hmm. uh, but given the fact that that. He's likened to a sachet of, of myrrh. There's also this kind of playful miniaturizing uh, of the, the the lover, so, so that the, the the big beautiful man becomes a little sachet of perfume mm -hmm. that she can enjoy. That's you know? right, and that's right. the kind of the playfulness. People yeah, are becoming exactly. they're they're bigger, um, more powerful, more seductive, but they also can be made smaller, and so. The, the, it almost closes the distances right. uh, between and, people. And I, I think that throughout the song, this is one of the reasons why it's such a, a rich collection of love poems, the, there is this almost teasing interplay be, between uh, figurative and literal, and you get that here. I'm still kind of, my mind reels at the idea that this poem, or these sets of poems were read so long as allegories. Yeah. How does one take the sensuality of them and deodorize it <laughs> right. uh, by taking it into allegory? I mean, did people resist that over time? And it just seems incredible that you could read these poems that are so intimately erotic. Well, and that if you think about it as the relationship then between, you said, uh, the, um, Israel and God, right? Right. Yeah. But that would suggest that there's an erotic relationship. Oh, between yeah. Israel and God, and vice versa. That's this kind of egalitarian, um, erotic relationship. Even though there are comically grotesque moments in the allegorical readings, uh, like when the two breasts are likened to Moses and Aaron, or to, <laughs> to the two tables of the law. But um, 
the um, mystical tradition has a, a heavy freight of uh, erotic imagery. Mm. That that is, there's a sense that the the um, the passionate union that the mystic aspires to, to have with God can only be a- adequately uh, represented through um, erotic language. So, mm-hmm. so that, that part of a it is A kind of flaming saying, passion. Yeah, right. Yeah. Why don't we um, look at that last uh, chapter and maybe start on page 50 uh, with the stanza that gives you the okay. title of your, your, your own translation and then read to the end. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For strong as death is love, fierce as Sheol is jealousy, its sparks are fiery sparks, a fearsome flame. Many waters cannot put out love, nor rivers sweep it away. Should a man give all the wealth of his house for love, they would surely scorn him. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a silver turret. If she is a door, we will besiege her with cedar boards. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Then I was in his eyes like a town that finds peace. A vineyard Solomon had in the Vale of Wealth. He gave the vineyard to the keepers. Each would get from its fruit a thousand silver shekels. My vineyard is my own. You can have the thousand Solomon and two hundred for the keepers of the fruit. You who dwell in the garden, friends, listen to your voice. Let me hear it. Flee, my love, lover, and be like a deer or like a gazelle on the spice mountains. There's just so much in those five pages that you're reading, and so many different moods, you know. And maybe we could start with that first one, that first part that gives you the title, you know, when he said, when uh, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for strong as death is love, fierce as Sheol is jealousy. Is that one of the first times we were thinking about jealousy in this poem? I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's the only time that the, yeah. the word occurs. Um, I th- now, some biblical scholars say that that word, which primarily means jealousy, could mean passion or zeal or something like that. I think it means jealousy. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, that the... The, um, uh, the other side of the... Um, uh, uh, of the incandescent nature of love is that if a lover feels betrayed, you have jealousy. Well, and there is that sense when uh, um, set me as a seal on your heart, the sense of being bound Mm -hmm. or imprinted uh, with the lover. I mean, make me inescapable, make me bonded to you. Right. but that line, that shield. I mean, uh, you, uh, my maybe you could explain a bit what that is evoking uh, oh, okay. in, in ancient uh, uh, um, Hebrew. Sheol is the underworld, and it's rather like Hades and Homer. That that is, it, it's not a, a true afterlife. It's kind of a, a, a dark pit into which we all descend. So it swallows us up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want to uh, express the idea that something is fierce or inexorable, uh, comparing it to Sheol is a good way to do it. But love really, I mean, it is exuberant and sometimes quite playful in the Song of Songs, but it is also all-consuming when the um the the when the beloved 
is coy with, with her lover at the door and he goes away, that, then she's frantic and she rushes out into the dark streets of the city, which is a very dangerous thing to do, as, as you can see from what happens. Uh, and um, also, the, the, there's one line w w which for, for me uh, encapsulates this all-consuming uh, aspect of love, which is, uh, uh, would that you were a, a brother to me sucking my mother's breasts. Yes. Uh, the, that is, she can't bear for a moment being separated from him, and so she wants to be able to go out into the streets embracing him, which she, she couldn't do unless he, he were her, her brother. It, it really it reminds me a little bit. This is a, a far-fetched comparison with, with, with that brilliant Japanese film from the 80s, I think, called uh, the, is it the, the Empire of the Senses, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, where the two lovers who genuinely love each other become so obsessed with, with, with each other that, that they literally can't separate, and then something terrible happens because of that. Well, and I, I think when I read that stanza about, you know, where she's imagining, wish you were the suckling on my mother's breast, yeah. it's it's a little dis, disturbing, I mean, yeah, to a, a yeah. contemporary reader, the right, way that right. she's thinking, oh, I wish you were suckling on my, you know, mother. Uh, it's it's odd, and it could, it's, a, it's you can explain it as you have, but that doesn't, you know, wipe out that kind of odd resonance you get of, um, but it's also there. Uh, the, another aspect of the poem is that she wishes that he were like her brother. You know that that's part of their companionship. Yeah, and th that that it's not just that this love is purely erotic, but that it also has this kind of deep familial aspect. Well, that, that's companionate. That's a, the, the, there's a, a, a particular Hebrew word which I think it's just used in the feminine here. He calls her his raya, which means friend. And uh, none of the previous translators represent it as friend. They, they say, uh, my darling, or, 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 or something, which pushes it a little bit in the direction of Hallmark cards. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that what, one of the great perceptions about love is it involves torrid passion, but it also involves companionship. Preach the gospel to the weekend man. Jonah got angry and he didn't want to go. He hailed him a ship and he got on board. Ship began to rock from side to side. Everybody got trouble in mind. They searched the ship down in the deep. Found old Jonah there fast. That's the great gospel singer Dorothy Love Coates with the original gospel Harmalettes telling the story of the Book of Jonah in their song from 1955, You Better Run to the City of Refuge. The Book of Jonah is a rather short book in the Bible, more a riddling parable than an extended narrative. It's the story of a would-be prophet, Jonah, who shirks a command from God to preach to the enemies of Israel in Nineveh, and then discovers it's not easy to escape his obligations to the deity. He stows away on a ship, but God summons a terrible storm. The sailors of the ship cast Jonah into the sea to appease God, at which point Jonah is both saved and trapped by being scooped up by a rather large fish, or whale, acting on God's command. When Jonah commits to God in the belly of the whale, the whale spits him back up on dry land. And then Jonah does go to Nineveh, to preach to these sinners. The ending of the parable has inspired much commentary. In it, God saves these sinners, and Jonah gets exasperated that God has not punished them, at which point God punishes Jonah instead and forces him to consider why he wishes for the destruction of his enemies. Okay, back to our interview with Bob Alter. So last but certainly not least, let's turn to the book of Jonah. This is a, a much more slim book mm -hmm. than the others we've discussed. Um, it's only four chapters. Four chapters. Four right. chapters, a word. Um, but it raises powerful questions uh, with its 
story of a prophet um, who runs away from the duties of being right. a prophet. And you describe it in your introduction as both an enchanting story and the shaking up of an entire theological world. And you can explain, well, what world is it shaking up and how is it doing that shaking? Well, prophecy in ancient Israel is a national, and I would even say nationalist, uh, enterprise. That is, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are all concerned with the fate of the nation of Israel, the fact that Israel, by being uh, disloyal to its obligations to God in the covenant it's supposed to have with him, had brought catastrophe on its head, and that in the end Israel will be uh, restored to its former state. Uh, so whoever wrote this book, we know it's late because the, the, you can tell by the Hebrew, the Hebrew changes uh, and it's, it's late biblical Hebrew. He is, I think it's a he, uh, a passionate universalist. So he begins by, by setting up this situation where a Hebrew prophet is directed by God to go and prophesy to Israel's arch enemy, Assyria. Uh, now, by the time the book was written, Assyria no longer existed. So w there's a kind of remembrance of the fact that, that centuries early, it was the Assyrian Empire that, that had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, whisked away the, the ten tribes. Mm. But you make the, the great... Uh analogy saying it's as if saying to a Jew that they have to deliver moral exhortation to the Germans in Berlin in 1936. Right. Like right. that is the kind of equivalent of Jonah's, uh, the task that he, that sure. God is, is, yeah. is putting uh, before him. Uh, how does our knowledge of that, that Assyria was the kind of mortal enemy, had been the mortal enemy uh, of the, um, of Israel, how does that shade how we relate to Jonah, how he understand what he does, how he's running away? Well, he doesn't want to have anything to do with this. Maybe he considers it dangerous to, to, to go to Nineveh, mm -hmm. which is in the news these days. Uh, uh, but he's probably also worried that, that, um, that if he delivers this message and the Ninevites listened to it, something that the Israelites never did to, to their <laughs> problem. <laughs> uh, uh, God may relent a, a, and save the, the, uh, uh, the city of Nineveh, which Jonah, a, a, as a, an Israelite nationalist, would like to see destroyed. So I think that that, that is why he flees. Hmm. So it's not just cowardice and not wanting to preach to the heathen or whatever, but it's it's also this uh, anxiety around these other people getting God's blessing when he would prefer right, for them right. to just languish in their Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, to be, be enveloped in fire and brimstone. Right, exactly. Uh, and you can see when he, he finally is... When when the whale, it's not a whale, but the big fish spits him out and he makes his way to, to Nineveh, uh, his, at least as in what's reported, his whole prophecy consists in the following words. In 40 days, Nineveh is to be overturned. Uh, so that, that doesn't seem to give them a lot of options. And I think he, he would like them just to be terrified and then to wait for, for the, the, the uh, cataclysm. Right. 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 Uh, instead, of course, uh, and, and here I, I think it's a com almost comical effect. They immediately take it, take it to heart. They change their ways. They put on sackcloth, sackcloth and fast, and their animals put on sackcloth <laughs> and fast. A, a wonderful touch. Uh, and Jonah is still hoping that somehow uh, 
God will stop relenting. So he, he finds a perch on a hillside overlooking uh, Nineveh and hopes to see fire and brimstone descending on that. <laughs> yeah. and, and he's gravely disappointed. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting question about why it is that God saves Nineveh, but he almost tortures Jonah a bit, you know, uh, you know first by having him you know, he has to kind of throw himself into the sea, and then he'll be taken by the big fish. Um, but also the the way Jonah ends, I, I find it very um, moving, but also enigmatic. You know, you want to talk about the where God has this whole scenario that he orchestrates in order to frustrate Jonah. Uh, he frustrates Jonah because Jonah is still unable to extricate himself from his nationalist parochialism. He, want, he still wants Nineveh to have suffered. Right, right. So he doesn't celebrate the mercy of God. Right, he right. He gnashes his teeth at it. Exactly. And it, I, I think it's terrific that the book ends with a question. <laughs> that, that is, God says, uh, um, uh, uh, you had pity on the, the gourd or whatever it is that... that, that uh, Overnight sprung up and overnight was gone. And shall I not have pity on a, a great city of 600,000 men and women and children and animals? <laughs> <laughs> those, because those animals yeah. are part of his creation. Right, I mean, that's, right. And that gets out to that sense. It's not just uh, in, in Jonah. We don't just get a sense that God has this kind of affection for other people who are mm. not the nation of Israel. But it's also that... He is working through all these different creatures in a, in a way that's magical. Um, it's, it's the plants. It's that uh, gourd that rises up and shades Jonah until right. God yeah. wants it to wither. And yeah, then, and see, elsewhere, when God turns to the nations it's in the prophets, generally he, he, he's using them as instruments to carry out his historical plans. But... There's never much sense that he has concern for the nations. Mm -hmm. You begin in, in to Jonah. get in yeah. Uh, you you begin to get this in the, the prophet who um, uh, scholars identify as Third Isaiah, who probably prophesied during the return to from the Babylonian exile, uh, when uh, who says my my house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples. Uh, but then the, the author of Jonah pushes us a step further. And says, you know what kind of God we have here? A God who uh, is not interested in national causes, who cares every bit as much for I Israel's uh, implacable enemies as for Israel. And a God who, in the final lines uses the socratic method <laughs> of asking right. a question <laughs> right i mean right. i think i think you're right that it would be so much different uh, so if at the end we saw jonah you know something clicking in his mind and saying ah you're right and i was right, wrong right, right. but you don't and so we as readers are left with this question right. rolling about in our own heads uh, and we could say well, what is jonah going to do now <laughs> <laughs> with his withered yeah. gourd plant and right, right. almost dying of a uh, heat right. stroke and exhaustion um well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, maybe we could, I'm so curious what you're going to do next. You know, you just finished the, these late uh, books of the Bible. Are you turning to more translation? Yes, other well, well, the thing is, when after I had done the first uh, book or so, the same editor, his name Steve Foreman from Norton, came to me and said, well, Bob, uh, what do you have in mind to, to do next? And... Uh, I said, well, I could make uh, a, a nice uh, volume out of a few small books of the Bible that I like, which of course is exactly what uh, Strong as Death is Love is. Um, 
and he's frowned and he said, well, you know, there's not a big marketing context <laughs> for miscellaneous books of the Bible. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, what do you have in mind, Steve? And he mm. said, if we had our druthers, we'd like you to do the whole Hebrew Bible. And of course I said, give me a break. Mm -hmm. So then we agreed on, on the, the five books of Moses, which I, I was happy to do. Uh, but th as time went on, I, I, at first I thought it was crazy to do the whole thing, but I've, I guess I have in print almost two-thirds of the whole Bible, and uh, in draft, um, maybe 85%. Um, I have in draft now all the prophets. Mm. So basically what I have left is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, and I hope I'll get through those in about a year and a half. Well, we eagerly await it. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm not alone in saying that. Um, thanks so much, uh, oh, Robert Alter, uh, for talking with me today about these unorthodox uh, books of the Bible. Thanks also go out to Gina Pollock, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, which has provided funding for the show. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at ChapterVersePod, or to check out our website at www.ChapterVersePod.com, where you can find this and other episodes of the show. Yeah.